Paul has been working his way uh, through Romans. Remember, Paul is, uh, has not visited this church. He is writing a letter to a church that he did not plant or start. And he is writing to them, announcing the gospel that he is preaching in the wide world. This gospel that has confronted many powers of the day, both Roman and Jewish. This gospel that has gotten him into hot water in the various places that he's gone as a missionary. This gospel he is declaring, and he has come through this whole section of declaring how no one is righteous, not anyone. We are all without hope unless... Something from the outside invades this world, invades our world, and changes us from the inside out. And so he's walking through this, and his term for this is God's righteousness, his rectifying love and power, the way God makes us right and makes the world right again that is broken by the fall and by sin. Paul says that must come from outside of us, and it comes in the person of Jesus. And so he's preaching to a Jew and Gentile audience, the church in Rome was a Jewish one, started as Jews who moved to Rome, who were converted to Christianity, but still practicing many of the Jewish ways and traditions. They were exiled, and then the Gentiles, who had been been saved in that church, became the leaders of that church. And now, Claudius has brought these Jewish Christians back after they had been exiled. And so this church is one and is experiencing inner turmoil because they are asking the question, how do we live a life of faith together? Is it based in the law or is it based in grace that gives faith? And Paul's gospel preaches a gospel of grace that brings faith, that calls us to trust that it is God who does the work, not us. And so I want to look at this passage today in three ways. The promise of God, first, is independent of the law. Second, Abraham's faith is analogous to belief in the resurrection. It's the same or similar to belief in the resurrection. And third, Abraham's faith anticipates resurrection. Paul here begins summing up the previous section. The promise of God is independent of law. Now, we might start with a question, what is the promise? Well, Verse 13, Paul says the promise is that Abraham would become an heir of the world. Abraham was promised to become a people, to have offspring that would possess land and that this offspring would exceed in number the sand of the seashores and the stars in the sky. And the promise was actualized in Abraham while Abraham was Abram, the father of no one and nothing. While he was worshiping the moon in the wilderness with his ancestors on the backside of Ur and later wandering in the wilderness, that's when the promise comes and is actualized in Abram's life. It came to him when he was already old and Sarah was old, pushing the very limits of childbearing. Abraham was 75, Sarah was 65. It came to him where every circumstance cried out to him, this is not possible. And yet the promise said he was going to be the heir of the world. Circumstances be damned. You will be the heir of the world. Have you been in places where everything seems to conspire against trust? 
against belief. Where what you can see and hear and taste and smell scream out to you over and over again, not possible. That marriage improving, not possible. Your child returning, not possible. Relationships reestablished with friends or family members, not possible. Your job and situation in life improving, not possible. How can God keep his promise? Look, just look, just open your eyes and look. It's not possible. Paul is saying that Abraham's status as heir of the world was not by virtue of anything other than God's gracious promise. It wasn't his lineage. It wasn't his works. It was all grace. It came to him before all of that. It did not come from the law. The law is God's perfect, good commands and word. If the law was the doorway to God's promise, then Abraham would have at first to perform the law to inherit the promise. But God declares him righteous prior to the giving of the law. Paul clarifies this further in the book of Galatians, which deals with some similar themes and ideas as Romans. He says, The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, and this does not do away with the promise. James Edward has an interesting idea. He shares the story of Levi the tax collector as further evidence of this idea. Had Levi been a former tax collector, this is Levi the disciple of Jesus. He was a tax collector. He was the spawn of Satan in the Jewish world. Had he been a former tax collector that Jesus came to, who had washed his hands of a dirty profession of his lying and cheating and scheming, his call might have been understandable. But Jesus calls him from that life while he's at the tax table during business hours, sitting and eating with Levi. And he is accused by the Pharisees of his day, you eat with tax collectors and sinners. The impulse of grace is what Paul is talking about here. Paul sees that impulse at work in the life of Abraham. Abraham is justified apart from the law. Like the Gentiles, all the non-Jewish world, the rabbis of Jesus in Paul's day taught that the promise came to Abraham because of his observance, and the faith with which he received it was meritorious. For Paul, grace depended not on a because of, but on an in spite of. And Paul shows this in verses 15 and 16. He speaks negatively of the law, transgression, wrath, and he speaks positively, in verse 16, of faith, grace, and promise. Abraham had to choose, in other words, one option or the other. He's pitting the two against each other. Abraham had to decide which way would it be. Either you can endeavor to make yourself worthy of the gift, or you can take credit and, or, and to take credit for something given freely, or where you can receive it in humility. There is no way for me to earn this. I need something outside of me, and I'm grateful for that because it's a gift. Without the posture of the second, there can be no righteousness and there can be no salvation. Either we receive the promise by faith, Paul says, or we forfeit the promise. To the Galatian church, Paul says, 
it even more clear. If the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through promise. The promise was rooted in and guaranteed by God. His word, his character. God is able to fulfill it because he creates out of nothing, verse 17, and brings life to the dead, verse 21. God is trustworthy, in other words, because he can do things that we can't do. Where we say not possible, God says possible. The promise presupposes God's will and favor. It is more than just a favorable disposition of God towards us or towards humanity. The promise is inheritance. It's a righteousness, a gift, adoption into God's life and community. And all of it, Paul said, is received by faith. Not by getting out the abacus and measuring out our merits, by the ways we are able to empty ourselves and the bad juju of self and do things that are good, that confer good on others more than ourselves. Not by achieving your status as a self-made man or woman, a self-determined one. Now, as we talked about a little bit last week, we want this. We want it to be dependent on us. We want to break off the shackles because if merit comes through our determination, it feels so much better. It feels so much better to be noticed for doing something good. It feels so good to merit someone's affection by doing something good for them. It feels good for doing them a solid, for them to then pay you back. That all feels so good. It feels so good to see the effects of bad karma in a dude getting what he deserves. We want that. But God offers us an alternative that he says is better, that's life-giving, not death-producing. And these promises, Paul says, take on human form in Jesus. Paul will say they are God's yes to us, that all the promises find their amen, their yes in this world, in Jesus. God says yes to the world in the promise of Abraham, even before Abraham knows God's name, his will, his world. God is for us, and his grace assures us that we cannot assure ourselves. So the promise, being independent from the law, from merit, embodied in the person of Jesus, means that a world that spins off its axis is not an object of damnation, but love. God says, I plan to give you a hope and a future to Abraham. Jesus proves it. Jesus is the promissory note to Abraham and to us. He comes into the world, lives a life of faith, faith in God's promises, even as it takes him and puts him on a cross to die for his friends and enemies. God enters into the world and confirms that the promise will be made good in Christ. He expresses his faithfulness. We will be heirs of the world like Abraham, and the inheritance will exceed the boundaries of any nation. All things, Paul says in Corinthians, are yours. All things are yours, whether in this world or this life or death or present, or the future, all things are yours, and you are in Christ, and Christ is in God. And so Abraham is the ethical prototype also for Jews and Gentiles. 
Paul says those of the law and those of faith. He is setting up the binary camps of the Roman church, not saying one is saved by the law and the other by faith, but instead calling out how they live separately in the life of the community. The promise, Paul says, is for all of Abraham's offspring. So live into your union. Remember the banishment of the Jews, the coming back, the return during Claudius. What would that church have been like? Founded by one group who is set off and leaves, the next group takes over leadership, leads in a different way, does different things, speaks about different things, and that old group comes back in. How would that have worked itself out? Well, Paul understands this. He is pointing out the two binary ways they tend to live and emphasizes to them how Abraham, justified apart from the law, is like the Gentiles, and how he is the father of faith of Jews as well, who are also justified by faith apart from the law, and he is the father of all people. Paul is setting up Abraham as this type, this archetype, and is showing how the church is called to live in unity, because they have a bond in Abraham that exceeds their perceived differences. Now, I want to think about how this applies to us. You see, our life as City Press, as the church, big capital C, is received by faith. Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, reminds us the community of the church does not have to be achieved. We don't make the unity. We receive it, he says. It has been accomplished for us in an external work in Jesus. In his body, he has united Jew and Gentile, tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Now imagine how great our divisions are in the world. All our different philosophies trying to work to achieve a better world. We do that in the church, to achieve a better church to be more unified, to feel more like a community. We must snuff out every hint of dis- disunity and with alacrity and alarm. At least that's what we think. But Christian community is received. Christian community is like Christian sanctification. It's a gift which we cannot claim. The Christian community has been given to us by God. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us, to all of us. We need to sit here for a second. I have community with others, and I shall continue to have it only through Christ. We too are like Abraham, all of us, heirs of the world. All of us who are in the promise or in Christ And this is the thing that unifies us, according to Paul, across every difference. This also means that when we sin in either not receiving this as truth, not trusting this, not surrendering to it, that we are called to repent. Like there are moments where circumstances seem to make this impossible for us. Or at least it feels impossible. We're just too different. We can't possibly exist in this same space or where we are fighting against it by insisting that we better divide in a better way of who's in and who's out in our current matrix of common life together. We add expressions to the Christian experience that then further divide us so that we can feel more united. We can feel like we're a better fit together. 
that we can have more to talk about. And we met out our ages, our life experiences, our stages, our, our persuasions. And that's where I find true community, we think. In sameness. This is community by law, by boundary, by human righteousness. We have to achieve it instead of receiving and surrendering to the promise given to Abraham, how Abraham was a foreshadow of Christ and how unity is found nowhere else but in Christ both now and into eternity. And if we are attempting to achieve it in other ways, we must repent and surrender in faith to the promise. Christ is the locus of our communion. And this is why each week when we take communion, it's a place for reconciliation. As we tear bread from a loaf and drink from a common cup, we imbibe the promises of God by faith. This is Christ's body. I am a member and one with it, and so I'm a member and one with you. And we all are heirs of the world in Christ. Now, in verse 17, Paul makes another point about Abraham's faith. Not only was Abraham made righteous by faith and apart from the law, his faith was a precog version of faith in the resurrection. Paul now shifts his emphasis how faith is founded on the resurrection. Abraham believed in a God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they are. Now, remember the life of Abraham and Sarah. Circumstances dictate not possible. His body and Sarah's body, long beyond childbearing age, long beyond not just childbearing, but caring for and feeding an infant, long beyond the hope of an heir. Remember the vital importance in the ancient world of having heirs, of having a family to take on your name, to take on your life, to take care of you in your old age. No one else would do it. You needed an heir. And yet, Abraham and Sarah's body, we're told, were as good as dead. In Abraham's dead body, in Sarah's dead body, bodies that couldn't produce life, in bodies that said, not possible, God produced life. Abraham's God gave life to himself, to his wife, and to his son. And so Abraham's God is the God of the impossible. The numbing darkness of the impossible was a terrible but necessary prelude to receiving the promises of God who spoke and it was, of a God who breathed life into the clay and flushed it with his life. The God who raises the dead cannot be tamed or controlled. He can only be received by faith. And by faith, God transforms frozen impossibilities into springs of hope and resurrection. Faith beholds life and existence where the man of the world sees nothing but death and non-existence, says Karl Barth. And contrawise, it sees death and non-existence where he beholds full-blooded life. So Paul says in verses 18 through 19, faith in the God of the impossible gives birth to hope, and hope is the anchor for the soul. Against all hope, or in hope upon hope, when Abraham surveyed that in his body was as good as dead, he was 100, Sarah was 90, there was no hope, circumstances said not possible, but Abraham saw his circumstances in faith. 
The weakness and impossibility then became places where Abraham's faith is actualized because God transformed Abraham's weakness and despair into hope. Where are you hearing the words, not possible? Where are you despairing? When Abraham saw his body as terrible as the prospects might have been, this was not all he saw. His circumstances he saw were in the hands of a God of mercy and a God of life. His weakness and impending death were places of potential for God to enact that mercy and life. Now, we must not forget that Abraham's faith was beset with opposition. Time and waiting drove him on the brink of despair. He tried to help God out. He tried to work it out. He feared and acted out of that fear. And yet, Paul says, his faith grew. Abraham's faith grew, Paul says. The obstacles did not stop him from believing. Doubts didn't stop him from believing. As time advanced, there was no place for self-reliance, no place for him to tap some inner reserves for his crisis. He came to the end of himself. The older and the more impotent he became, the stronger, we're told by Paul, he grew in his conviction that God was faithful to fulfill his promise. His faith, in other words, was not bound by what he could see. Calvin aptly observes, there is nothing more injurious to faith than to fasten our minds to our eyes. It was not from his senses that Abraham fell into hope, but from his faith. What he saw filled him with despair, but the word of promise inspired him with hope. In him who raised Jesus from the dead, Abraham is said to believe. Now, friends, our life of faith is a life of disappointment. And those disappointments must be viewed within the construct of resurrection. If death is the final enemy and that enemy will be defeated, then disappointments are opportunities for our faith to grow. If faith does not rest on what we can see but on what we can't see, then not seeing is prerequisite for faith and the disappointments that fill our lives are meant to help us grow in our faith. So again, like I did last week, I would remind you that God giving you always what you ask or most of what you ask is probably not what is best for you in developing a life of faith. We, we live in this world that is so much about what we can see. It demands for things to be seen. If they aren't seen, then it is not true. And God speaks into such a world as an unseen God, offers Christ as an image of himself, but that image goes to a cross and dies. God, in human flesh, goes to the cross and dies. And people are leave and run from that place in despair. But that's something into the story. That becomes the prerequisite 
to resurrection. Death must occur for resurrection life to come. Abraham questioned God. He pleaded with God. Sarah laughed in disbelief. Yeah, right, God, she said. And when God calls Abraham to walk the path up to Mount Moriah to give Isaac back to God, he trudges up that mountain with the words, God will provide, God will provide. As he raises the knife, he is filled with the words, God will resurrect. His move to faith included doubt and question and struggle. And in the tempest of the struggle, Abraham did not allow himself to be swept into the vortex of unbelief. He didn't become a nihilist, in other words, like facts and statistics and hard evidence in life, though inescapable, did not rule him. Some of you are there. Some of you are resigned, nihilistic. You've suffered. You feel the heavy hand of God, and you've resigned yourself to, well, it is what it is. So you're like, whatever, man, you've checked out. You've abandoned the idea of promise. And even today, God is inviting you back into a life built on promise and hope and on resurrected life. Jesus, on the cross, embraced a way of disappointment, faith that can't see. He cries out, take this cup from me, Father, but not what I will, but what you will. He knew the struggle of faith, and he surrendered in hope to a God who would vindicate him in death, bringing glory to God. Now, Abraham is fully persuaded of the promise because of the character of the God who stood behind it, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And maybe today that's what you need to be to sit into, persuaded of the character of God. And that, for you, is the rub. Because what God has done to you, because what you have suffered To sit into the character of God seems like a betrayal to what you believe to be true. And yet, into that, I hold out to you, Jesus, the God-man who enters into suffering and suffers like you suffered. I mean, what else can you bank on? I mean, the alternatives are like existential hope. Well, this is all I have. I know there's no, there's no meaning in this life, and there's nothing out there when with I die. So I will be brave, and I will live anyway. I will thrust myself and do all the things I love to do, and I will take this life, this one life, and make the most of it, and YOLO, YOLO the heck out of it. That is an alternative, by the way. It's real. But then you die. And you're not remembered. Generations after will not be praising your name, and your memory will not endure forever. And into that reality, God offers Jesus and resurrection. Peter said to Jesus, when everybody started to abandon Jesus because he taught hard words, Peter says, where else can we go? You have the words of life. You see, circumstances increased Abraham's God-reliance. In verses 23 and 25, Paul says, the righteousness, remember that word, rectification, God will rectify, he will set to right, he will make things right, he will make you right. This was not just for Abraham, but for us. 
Abraham isn't a museum piece. This isn't just a history lesson. Paul's hope is that for those whose faith is as good as dead like Abraham's, whose hope is as good as dead like Abraham's, whose life has been shipwrecked and left for dead, whose decisions have left them feeling as good as dead, for a people who feel like the best bet is to is being as good as dead, like Abraham is a first fruit of this process of salvation that extends from Jesus to us. And God's promises only come to those who are as good as dead. Because it thrusts us to rest on the one who Paul says raised Jesus from the dead. Whoever believes God raised Jesus from the dead testifies to the God of promise, to the one who gives life to the dead. And Abraham and Sarah believe despite the deadness in themselves. So believers are justified through faith in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. It is the same faith in the same God who brings life to the dead. God creates people through death. Jesus is dead. It's Friday. He's in the tomb. His ragamuffin followers have all fled, abandoned him in the place of death, and from this death, God brings life. The Bible describes us as being dead in our sin, helpless to do anything about our condition. We are dead. In baptism, we are buried and dead, but God brings us living water, and people are raised out of it alive. We are a people made through the death of the Son of God. In union with him by faith, we are brought from death to life, the Bible says. And then through our dying to ourselves, others are brought into this union. Paul says in Galatians 3, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is now neither Jew or Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is male nor female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs of the promise. It is from dead fruit life will come. In John 12, Jesus says, uh, Jesus speaks about his life. And I think the life of all those who are united to him when he says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. It isn't fruitful, but if it dies, it will bear much fruit. And so Paul finishes the chapter saying, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins, and was raised to life for our justification. Parallelism here, death for sin, raised for righteousness, raised for rectification, raised to be made right with God, raised for our world to be made right with God, points doubtless to an early Christian formula or confession. Christ's achievement on both accounts was for us. And God alone is the one who made Christ alive and vindicated him in resurrection, and he will do this for us. And the resurrection makes us alive to God and conquers death. And so Paul calls us this morning to a place of trust. Umbria was baptized and called before she knows it. Grace is for her. This emphasizes God's move towards us. The promise lays in wait, and he will enliven her to receive it. And for you, as you sit here in all these chairs right now, the call is given, and God will make you alive to receive it in faith, to sit into it. And so the move is to turn to God. Open up 
my dead heart. In spite of my circumstances, help me to believe. I've casted you off, but you keep calling. Just like God called Isaac forth from the dead body of Abraham, just like he called Jesus up from the sealed tomb, and just like he calls all of us from death to sin. God creates a people through death. Dead wombs, dead tombs, dead hearts. In all of those places, God brings life. And so the call this morning is to sit into that promise and remember that the promise is actualized for those who are as good as dead. And so we end by saying, is there anything for us that's too hard for God? Let's pray. God, we ask that you would remind us even in promise today as we take wine and bread, as we imbibe it into our bodies, this body is for us. This blood is for us. And it is promise. It is built on the promise of what you have done and the future promise of what you will do in restoring us and feasting with us at a table forever. And so as we come and receive it this morning, help us to receive it with the eyes of faith, no matter our circumstances this this morning, no matter what we came in here believing, no matter how much our struggle is to believe, help us to see in living color, this is what you've done, and you are trustworthy because you sent your only son to die in our place and to be raised for our justification. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.